1: 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You will receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here's a special offer to my podcast listeners. If you join the Inner Circle today at NewtCenterCircle.com and sign up for a one- or two-year membership, I'll send you a free, personally autographed copy of my book, Gettysburg, and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com. Use the code FREEBOOK at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com, code FREEBOOK. This offer ends January 31st. In this episode of Newt's World, genetic testing has become a multi-billion dollar direct-to-consumer business. They have tests available now to discover your ancestors, reveal your food allergies, even uncover inherited chronic diseases. The tests have become so popular, more people took genetic ancestry tests in 2017 than in all previous years combined. But how reliable are these direct-to-consumer tests? And what can they really tell us about our health? On this episode, we're looking at the business of genetic testing, the reasons why someone may want to decide to take the test, and the importance of counseling and medical oversight in the process. As DNA becomes a commodity sought after by scientists and biotech companies, we'll address the privacy issues that loom over the genetic testing industry. And ask, does the industry have enough oversight by regulators Protect consumers. My guests are Megan Bell, genetic counselor at Sanford Health, Dr. Katherine Hayek, physician chair, Sanford Imaginetics, and Dr. James Hazel, research fellow at the Center for Genetic Privacy and Identity in Community Settings at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I think our goal here is to both give people a reassuring sense of the right kind of approach to DNA testing and how it relates to preventive care and to identifying specific diseases. How did you get interested in this whole process of genetic counseling?
2: I love my job. I love working with families, maybe just starting with one member of the family that is either at risk or has a genetic condition and then oftentimes being able to work my way through their brothers and sisters and their kids and their uncles and aunts and their parents to just inform the family and reassure the family that they know what their risks are and they know the steps to take to be able to have the best health that they can.
1: How does the process start?
2: Oftentimes, a patient is referred to us by their doctor because of either a personal or a family history of a condition or a symptom. So that might be a cancer at an early age or a specific heart problem. And from there, they meet with a genetic counselor and the first step oftentimes is taking a family history and a personal history to learn more about what are they dealing with? What does their family look like? What type of symptoms or characteristics do their family members have? And then from there, really assessing and giving them an understanding of what are we seeing in the family, what sort of patterns are we seeing, does it look like there could be a genetic cause to the different symptoms that they're presenting with. And then sometimes genetic testing is appropriate, not always, not every condition has a genetic link, but if genetic testing is appropriate, then we would talk about not only what the testing options are, but what the testing would mean for my patient. And I think that's the key part of this whole discussion is thinking through, do I want to have genetic testing? Would it be helpful for me? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my family members? Does my family want to know this information? What would I do if I test positive or have a genetic condition? What sort of medical management or screening options are out there? Is there anything I can take to reduce my risk? So those are the types of that conversation that we have Just figuring out what does this mean for a patient, and is this the best choice for
1: them? What's the difference for me as a potential patient between going to some kind of over-the-counter product that I might have seen advertised on TV and going to a system like the one you work in? What's the difference qualitatively and in safety and in what I will learn?
2: So, there are a lot of options on the market called direct to consumer tests. So a lot of those are you spit in a tube, you don't meet with a healthcare care provider, you don't it's not ordered by a doctor. and therefore, you don't often get that discussion of you know what would this test mean for me? What would it mean for my family? Most of those tests aren't reporting a lot of health information. They might be reporting some health information. Most of the time it's related to ancestry or some sort of trait. So meeting with a genetic counselor and having real clinical genetic testing is, one, more accurate and two, more specific to the actual condition that the family could be presenting with.
1: How much of what you learn is useful for general preventive treatment and how much of it is useful in primarily narrowing down and identifying specific disease states?
2: like to say that genetic counseling could be appropriate for anybody. I think everybody has something in their family that they worry about or they wonder, could this be genetic or is there anything that I can do about it to prevent my risk or reduce my risk? But that doesn't mean that everything in a family is genetic or every health problem has a genetic link. A majority of the common conditions like heart disease or diabetes or even most cancers are multifactorial so they have both genetic causes and environmental causes and all of those factors go together to create the risk for somebody and so not every health problem has a genetic link and most common conditions are kind of that multifactorial risk factors.
1: What's the longest time you found yourself interacting with a family or with an individual?
2: I've been in the field for about five years and there are still some families that I started working with not long after I started as a genetic counselor that'll get a call from either an update of how they're doing or a change in their health history or maybe one of their siblings or children is ready for genetic testing because it's oftentimes scary to think about your health risk and what might be down the road for you. And so not everybody in a family is ready for genetic testing at the same time. And so oftentimes months or years go by and I'll get a call from a family member wanting genetic testing or wanting to talk about what that means for them at a later date. You get to know a family really well by taking their family history and not only learning about the health stuff that's going on in a family, but also how family members interact, what their relationships are like. Do they talk to their sister? Do they have a relationship with their child? So you really get to know the family dynamics too of a family.
1: Can I call you direct or do I have to have a doctor recommend me?
2: Most of the time we require a referral from a doctor. But if a patient was interested in talking with a genetic counselor, I think another option is just to call into a healthcare system and ask to talk to the genetic team. And most of the time, they can get their questions answered that way.
1: Let's say I've been referred to you. What do I go through? The first step
2: when we see a patient is taking a really good family history. We often take a three-generation pedigree, so going back three generations each direction. And then really talking about what are we seeing in that family What sort of symptoms might be associated with a genetic condition or genetic syndrome? And then what are testing options that are available if genetic testing might be applicable? And we'll talk through what those options are, what that would mean for a patient, what the possible test results are, how it might impact their family members, their medical management, their screening... And then what it would look like for giving their results. And if they were positive, if they had a genetic condition found, where would they go from there? What doctors would we refer them to? And what would that mean for them and their family?
1: Do you find fairly often that if a person comes in and presents to you and you discover a certain genetic pattern, that that does lead you then to try to track it back to the rest of their family to see if they need to find out whether it's sort of a common pattern in the entire family?
2: Oftentimes, patients are motivated by helping their family and trying to allow their family to have more information than they had prior to their diagnosis.
1: Do you then work directly with the doctors?
2: Most of the time, genetic counselors work in a healthcare team with physicians, just so everybody knows how to best manage the patient.
1: Do you find, with all the breakthroughs we're getting in genetic information and technologies and all that, do you find that you have a challenge of continuing education just to keep up with your field?
2: Our field has changed so much, even in the five years that I've been in the field. The availability of different testing options of what we know just from the research side of things is incredible. We really are constantly trying to learn more and stay up to date with the testing options, with the new conditions, with everything that we're learning in the research world. It's also really hopeful for our patients that we're constantly learning more about their condition and how they might best treat or manage their condition. So there's a lot of hope there for the families that we work with.
1: How many people are directly affected by specific genetic defect that leads to these?
2: So typically we say with cancer, more specifically or breast cancer, about 5 to 10% of those have a pure genetic cause. Another example of that might be autism where we might be able to find right now the genetic cause of about 30% of autism cases and it totally depends on the type of condition and what we know so far about the genetic cause, that risk or chance of finding something genetic is going up as we learn more about all the different genetic causes of different conditions.
1: Someone once said to me that there's no such thing as cancer, that there are actually at least 200 different diseases that we lump together and call cancer.
2: That's a huge area of growth is the personalized treatment of cancer, and each cancer is really driven by a different genetic change. Even if cancer isn't hereditary, the risk is passed down in the family, cancer is really caused by a change in the genes, and that's different person to person, even breast cancer to breast cancer, colon cancer to colon cancer. We've learned a lot about how Specific that cancer is to somebody and so that you said that there might be 200 types of cancers well it's probably even bigger than that because every different cell type that causes cancer often has a different mutation profile that could be treated differently and targeted differently and so Sometimes we like to say as we learn more about genetics, we learn more about what we don't know and how complicated it is, which is both exciting and a huge challenge as we think about developing personalized treatments to different genetic conditions.
1: Does that also mean that as you look out over the future, more and more doctors are going to turn to professionals like you and say, I need the following kind of test for this particular patient? to help me decide which track to go down in treating them. So you actually become more responsive to the doctor's desire for specialized information.
2: I think learning what's causing a particular condition, if there's a genetic cause, can definitely change treatment. One way that we often see that, and I've been involved with testing for patients, is for learning about a genetic cause of high cholesterol. And if we can learn what's causing that high cholesterol, if it's diet related or not having a lot of exercise, or if it might be actually a genetic predisposition to develop that high cholesterol, we actually will recommend a different medication to help reduce that cholesterol. And that really was driven by the genetic test that was done to help direct that treatment.
1: One last question. In order to do the testing, do you take blood or do I spit into a tube? What's our interaction for you to have the material to actually figure out what's going on?
2: Great question. So oftentimes genetic testing can be done either through blood or saliva and really what we need is just a DNA from different cells of the body and so blood is kind of the standard sample mechanism but we're getting creative in the ways that we can get DNA. So sometimes it's easier for our little kiddos that we see that don't want to give a blood sample to do saliva or a cheek swab.
1: Listen, thank you so much and I'm delighted that, that you are this enthusiastic and that you Are this committed to helping the patients?
2: Well, thanks for having us on and being able to talk a little bit about what we love to do.
1: When we come back, Dr. Katherine Hayek explains the importance of medical oversight in the genetic testing process. Dr. Katherine Hayek. What led you to get interested in DNA?
3: The reason I went into internal medicine is the I love the patient relationship and also the preventative side of medicine that goes with internal medicine. And I practiced for a couple of years. And as I was practicing, started reading more and more about genetics and medicine and how that application can really play a role in prevention. So I it kind of took the leap and went back for a fellowship in genetics with really my goal in doing that training was to learn how to better incorporate genetics in really more into the primary care setting. Now, that said, I do enjoy the rare disease component of it, but I think it's really exciting, the opportunity that exists for us to start thinking more about genetics in a broader sense. And that's been part of my role here at Sanford. A lot of the clinicians I work with haven't had genetics in their training like I didn't before I went back for fellowship.
1: How do you keep up with the rate of change and the explosion of new understanding of DNA and the whole process by which the human body regulates itself?
3: That's one of the reasons I love this field because it is ever-changing and we're learning something new all the time. At Sanford, we work with a lot of different collaborators, so obviously there are experts in all different areas of genetics, and so we try to have involvement with different people and different groups to leverage their expertise and what we do here at Sanford. As a geneticist, there's no way to stay up to date on all of it. Most people kind of focus in a given area and then leverage the expertise of others to help maintain that knowledge.
1: What do you see as a... Really exciting areas of breakthrough from genetic knowledge as it relates to the patient and practical daily realities.
3: In the last few years, there's been a heightened interest among patients to how their genetics impacts their health. And I think what that's provided us the opportunity with is to take the responsibility and help people do that in an evidence-based manner. My key interest in going into medicine basically in general is prevention, and now we're learning things that we can test for in a more preventative light. There are currently just a handful, but a few conditions where if you do a genetic test for them, you can be preventative in nature. For example, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, that's a condition where a patient who is affected has a significantly increased risk for breast and ovarian cancer, and you can actually take action and do enhanced surveillance, in some cases take the step of doing prophylactic interventions like surgery to reduce risks, but I think it's really exciting to be able to provide that knowledge back to patients so that we can be more precise in how we design a screening protocol for them. Another really exciting area is obviously gene therapy. There are just a very small number today of conditions where gene therapy can reverse what the trajectory of some of these very severe conditions can be. The potential that exists there is huge. It's life-changing for the patients that it can impact. I think we're just on the front end of where that part of medicine is going to go.
1: Do you find that because of the nature of a lot of genetic information, that it almost invariably leads you to an interest in the family as opposed to the individual?
3: Yes. There's no doubt about that. We always say genetics is a family affair. The other thing that I will tell you, I see patients in my clinic and one of the questions I always ask is, what do they hope to learn today and why are they here? I would say 95% of the time the response is, I want to know what's going on so that I can help my family. So that if there's something that I can pass along to them that we can know that and be proactive about it. So yes it is kind of twofold you know obviously it allows you the opportunity to be more precise on the individual level but that just then opens the door to helping out the relatives of that individual in a pretty significant way.
1: So you could really run down a trail can't you begin to track down everybody in the extended family that has that particular genetic defect?
3: Once you diagnose one person, one of the key parts of that conversation is, let's talk about your family members at risk. We really try to help patients inform their family members. Sometimes that can be a difficult conversation and it's really family dependent too. Some families are very open about this type of information. Others are a little more closed off. And so we try to help them with that conversation. We really always consider the family when we see an individual with a genetic condition because these are also fairly complicated things and obviously a new piece of information for a family. And, and so we want to do the best we can to equip them with the ability to, to communicate that.
1: So you really, in a sense, make a huge difference between the sort of over-the-counter stuff that gets advertised and the process of having a real relationship with a doctor that involves an in-depth understanding of what's going on and what the implications are. I mean, there's an enormous gap there that I think people don't realize.
3: I think that's true. A lot of times we'll talk about the -the over-the-counter or direct-to-consumer test as being kind of for entertainment purposes. There's typically no physician or genetic counselor involved in that process and the testing is typically not comprehensive enough to be what we would consider diagnostic in a clinical setting. It's important for people to know that that gap exists and to know what those limitations are because it is quite a bit different than actually doing this in a clinical setting. Not to say people shouldn't do it, it just has to be done knowing that this isn't something that should be used as a part of your medical record or medical decision making.
1: From your perspective, how much of what you do is preventive and how much of it is trying to do an analysis that leads to a treatment for an existing condition?
3: I do mostly preventive. There are very few things that I diagnose where there's a treatment. We're very upfront about that with patients. When a patient comes in and it appears that there could be a genetic underpinning to their condition, the discussion typically revolves around, first of all, is this something that we could even do a genetic test for? Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you can tell that it's genetic, but that has not been determined to have a genetic cause that we know today. So number one, is testing important? And then we talk through, okay, here are the potential outcomes of a test, which would be a, a positive or a negative test. Mostly there are some nuances there. And then we talk about the fact that, even if you're positive for this condition, for the most part, we don't have a treatment that's going to cure or reverse this condition. However, what we can do with this information is typically preventive. So are there particular screening mechanisms that we can use to help reduce your risk of developing an associated condition with the underlying genetic problem? So for example, if a patient comes in and it turns out that they are a candidate for BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing and then they're found to have a, a mutation in one of those genes that predisposes them to the breast and ovarian cancer risk then we can do breast MRI or you know is is the discussion to the point where we would talk about prophylactic mastectomy. So very much can't stop the fact that this cancer risk exists but we can help them take action to reduce that risk.
1: Do you find people are pretty responsive at that point?
3: A lot of times the response is knowledge is power in this situation and knowing this can allow me to take action so I don't end up with the late stage cancer that my aunt or my mom or my sister had. Most of the time people they understand that there are limitations and this is what we can do but that that's an action that they would like to take. Sometimes we'll test family members who are older and they may have already had breast cancer or the ovarian cancer but they say I want my family to know this so they don't have to go through this process so we can kind of preemptively take action.
1: Are there specific breakthrough kind of areas where the development of DNA understanding is actually curing diseases that we used to not be able to cure?
3: I think the knowledge that we have now regarding DNA and its relationship to disease is that we're able to diagnose better. So what we see often in our clinic are younger patients who have struggled potentially with intellectual disability, developmental delay, various neuromuscular things, autism, and they've never had a cause for their condition. And that at the time they were born, say 20 years ago, the testing just wasn't there to be able to try. Or if they did have genetic testing, it was pretty different than what we have today. And So now when those patients come and see us in their 20s, we can offer a test and provide a cause for their condition in a lot of cases, not all cases. I don't want to say someone comes to genetics and we answer every question. That's not true, but it's a lot more common now. And for many families, just knowing what the diagnosis is that they've been dealing with their whole lives offers a huge sense of relief because a lot of times parents will tend to blame themselves for their child's condition. Is it something I did? Or if I had done this differently, would their outcome have been different? And when we can provide a genetic diagnosis, it helps to kind of relieve them of that guilt, and that is hugely helpful. A lot of times these families have been on what's called a diagnostic odyssey, and they've undergone many different diagnostic tests and procedures to help understand what is the cause for their condition. And once we give a genetic diagnosis, we can put an end to that, which is also a huge relief for families because then they don't have to go for that next MRI or the next blood test or a new specialist. Now we have an answer. And even though we maybe don't have a treatment, oftentimes find a network of people who maybe have the same condition, which is a huge help for these families because then you have a social network that can support you in this and help you understand my child has this is it similar to what your child has. For a lot of families, a huge relief to know others with a rare disease that they've never known anyone to have. And then they can kind of see how the disease progresses, which can be really helpful.
1: When you look out of the next 10 or 20 years, what makes you the most excited about your field?
3: I think what's really exciting is the potential to use genetics across more common diseases. So there are certain conditions like heart disease, for example. We do have clinical risk predictors. Somebody's weight and age and cholesterol and and family history can give us a prediction of their heart disease risk, there's huge potential to start incorporating genomics into that risk calculation to help better identify people who might be at risk. This has the potential to more specifically identify patients at risk for a lot of different conditions. And this is still definitely an area that's in the research realm, but there are certain conditions where... It could start to translate into the clinical setting in the next five to ten years, which is really exciting to have a new piece of information that we can use to help the broader population understand their risk for more common diseases. As the cost and accessibility to genetic testing have improved, it offers the potential for us to more readily test patients for some of the rarer things. There are certain conditions. For example, familial hypercholesterolemia, a condition where there's a significantly increased risk for coronary artery disease due to very high levels of cholesterol. A large portion of the people who actually have that condition are underdiagnosed. In some estimates, as high as 90% of people who have this are not diagnosed. Genetic testing for that condition has been expensive, and that cost is declining, And so that allows us to identify those patients and do a better job caring for them, getting them on treatment and helping to reduce that risk. That's a huge impact. And so I think the biggest exciting thing for me is the genetics in the realm of preventative care. I think there'll be a a huge change in how we care for patients.
1: There are two interestingly big potential patterns that could change a lot over the next 10 to 20 years. One is, as the technology gets better and more efficient, that prices keep coming down. So you begins to be much more routine to gather the genetic data. And the other is that as it gets put into an archival system, the sheer volume of knowledge we begin to develop. Do you see those kind of things leading to places like Sanford having such a huge amount of knowledge that they can simply analyze things so much more precisely and so much more rapidly because they have such a huge Background of information.
3: One thing that we talk about is the day where a patient will have their genome sequenced once and then you'll return to the data at various intervals to reevaluate whether or not there's a risk that's identifiable from it. As the costs come down, it becomes something that is more readily available to all patients. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about sequencing patients as newborns and then just having that information available so that down the road, if if it seems like there's something that might merit a better understanding of their genetic data or there's a genetic disease, that you can just go back and re-interrogate that data to evaluate for whatever health concern you may be considering.
1: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time.
3: We appreciate the opportunity. It's always a great chance for us to be able to help educate the public with regard to genetics and medicine.
1: Next. Dr. James Hazel talks about the privacy issues with direct-to-consumer DNA testing kits. Dr. James Hazel, how did you get involved in looking at the whole issue of DNA and ethics.
4: I'm a molecular biologist by training. I was a a bench scientist, but wanted to get more involved on the policy side. So during the course of going to law school, I was fortunate enough to partner with a new center here at Vanderbilt Medical Center that studied genetic privacy issues. And one of my first projects was to evaluate the privacy policies of U.S.-based direct-to-consumer companies.
1: Were you surprised by what you initially found?
4: The study was conducted by myself and my co-author, Chris LeBogan, at Vanderbilt Law School. We were shocked by the level of variability amongst companies in the United States. We looked at 90 companies. The, The industry is obviously quite diverse. This is companies that offer anything from health and ancestry testing to companies that offer more dubious lifestyle and athletic ability testing.
1: Let's start with the basics. How can somebody know what the right kind of company is?
4: Well, I think it requires that the consumer do a little bit of homework. I would recommend that they seek out the larger, more well-established companies. If it's a company you've never heard of and you can't find much about on the internet, it probably is a company that you do not want to engage in testing with. The large companies, in contrast, they've been in the public spotlight for years, and as a result, Their privacy policies tend to be more comprehensive, and their privacy practices more in line with best practices.
1: And is there any kind of baseline that's legally required?
4: There's a relatively low baseline, and that is the Federal Trade Commission in the United States polices all areas of commerce and polices unfair and deceptive business practices. So if the practices of a company rise to the level of unfair or deceptive, the FTC can take action. Other than that, the baseline of protection is relatively low.
1: Would you even consider getting a direct-to-consumer or would you automatically move towards having a doctor as an intermediary?
4: I think that's going to depend on the individual and what they hope to get out of the testing. Many individuals just approach this from pure curiosity and are looking to find out more about their ancestry or lifestyle traits. However, if the individual is interested in more health-related information or information that they expect they will use to guide their clinical care, obviously that should probably be conducted within the healthcare setting. As far as what I would tell individuals, I would tell consumers to make sure that they have read and understand the privacy policy. So they should ask themselves, do I understand how my data is going to be used by the company once I surrender it to them? And do I understand what third parties it is going to be shared with? And as a further note, consumers should also be on the lookout for what choices they have in the process. So for example, do they have the choice to opt in or opt out of research sharing of their data? Do they have the opportunity to opt out of family finder services that allow the consumer to locate potential genetic relatives based on the test, those sort of things.
1: I'm guessing that with that kind of test, you could sometimes have a pretty rude shock.
4: Yes, people might discover things about their health that could cause them some anxiety and that they have little control over. Another big thing that we're seeing is individuals are finding out things about their family relationships that could be disruptive. So for example, they might find out that they have a sibling who is not genetically related to them. They share a different father, for example, or they might locate relatives that they did not know that they had and could be put into contact with them. I will say that there are companies offering tests for predisposition to diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, that sort of thing. I would recommend that people seek out confirmatory testing in the healthcare setting and not overly rely on the results from direct-to-consumer companies.
1: If I go and I buy this kind of a test, what actually happens to it? Do they go to a reliable lab or do they send it overseas to something that's inexpensive but unreliable? Or how do I know what they're doing with my DNA?
4: That's a good point, and it varies widely depending on the company that you use. Some of that information will be available on the company's website or in their policies, but it does require that people read that. So, to answer your question, where does it go? The larger, more established companies do use labs that are certified under CLIA, and as such, they're subject to regulations that are designed to ensure that the tests are accurate and reliable. However, the majority of the industry, I would say, does not utilize CLIA-certified labs presently, and so consumers should try and figure out, either on the company's website or in their policies, whether they are using a CLIA-certified lab. Many will state whether they are or not.
1: Does my DNA information come under HIPAA? Is it supposed to be protected?
4: Generally, with direct-to-consumer genetic testing, the information that you generate will not be subject to HIPAA in most, if not all, cases. So
1: they could technically share it and they wouldn't be breaking the law?
4: It depends on the, the privacy policy that is in place with that company. So if they were engaging in sharing that was above and beyond what was described in their policies, it is possible that that would rise to the level of unfair and deceptive and be a cause of action for the FTC to, to come in and investigate.
1: That would require somebody to complain to the FTC, right?
4: Right. That would require the FTC getting word of, the practice that was at odds with what was in the policy.
1: To what extent do we need to have much more sophisticated and thorough government regulation of this whole DNA business?
4: Well, I think that's an ongoing debate with people coming down on both sides of that. There are obviously benefits to having a free flow of genetic information, benefits to research. Consumers are empowered to make decisions about their health and to learn things about their ancestry. On the other side of the spectrum, others argue that currently there's not enough oversight of particularly these health-related tests, and that could lead to consumer confusion. Some companies may offer test results that are inaccurate or misleading, and that under the current regime, there's nothing to ensure that consumers are actually making an informed decision to undergo the testing and fully understanding its implications.
1: Once your DNA is out there and linked to your name, to what extent is it then vulnerable to being used by others, and how could they use it?
4: Some of the big concerns that we hear are fears about discrimination based on that information by either employers or health insurance companies. So it's important to remember with direct-to-consumer genetic testing, it's often not just genetic data that the company has. They often have your personal information, people fill out surveys about their health conditions, the health conditions of their families, the lifestyle choices they make. And so really, when all that data is pooled, it could be a potential goldmine for entities that might wish to exploit that information against the interests of the individual.
1: This is really, really helpful. I'm very grateful. And I think people will find your information very useful.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you to my guests, Megan Bell, Dr. Katherine Hayek, and Dr. James Hazel. You can read more about genetic testing and your personalized health care on our show page at NewtsWorld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Slum. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Grace Davis. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. on the next episode of Newt's World. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing on the moon. Now, we're looking ahead to the future of space travel, to the moon and Mars and beyond. I think you'll be astonished by how close we are to achieving the next major milestone in space. I'm Newt Gingrich, this is Newt's World.
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW report void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.